A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 19. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 7 Siut to Dendera, Part 1. We started from Siut with a couple of tons of new brown bread on board, which, being cut into slices and laid to dry in the sun, was speedily converted into rusks and stored away in two huge lockers on the upper deck. The sparrows and water wagtails had a good time while the drying went on, but no one seemed to grudge the toll they levied. We often had a big wind now, though it seldom began to blow before ten or eleven a.m., and generally fell at sunset. Now and then, when it chanced to keep up, and the river was known to be free from shallows, we went on sailing through the night. But this seldom happened, and when it did happen, it made sleep impossible, so that nothing but the certainty of doing a great many miles between bedtime and breakfast could induce us to put up with it. We had now been long enough afloat to find out that we had almost always one man on the sick list, and were therefore habitually short of a hand for the navigation of the boat. There never were such fellows for knocking themselves to pieces as our sailors. They were always bruising their feet, wounding their hands, getting sunstrokes and whitlows and sprains, and disabling themselves in some way. L., with her little medicine chest and her roll of lint and bandages, soon had a small but steady practice, and might have been seen about the lower deck most mornings after breakfast, repairing those damaged Ali's and Hassan's. It was well for them that we carried an experienced surgeon, for they were entirely helpless and despondent when hurt, and ignorant of the commonest remedies. Nor is this helplessness confined to natives of the sailor and fella class. The provincial proprietors and officials are to the full as ignorant, not only of the uses of such simple things as poultices or wet compresses, but of the most elementary laws of health. Doctors there are none south of Cairo, and such is the general mistrust of state medicine, that when, as in the case of any widely spread epidemic, a medical officer is sent up the river by order of the government, half the people are said to conceal their sick, while the other half reject the remedies prescribed for them. Their trust in the skill of the passing European is, on the other hand, unbounded. Appeals for advice and medicine were constantly being made to us by both rich and poor, and there was something very pathetic in the simple faith with which they accepted any little help we were able to give them. Meanwhile, L.'s medical reputation, being confirmed by a few simple cures, rose high among the crew. They called her the Hakim Sit, the doctor lady, obeyed her directions and swallowed her medicines as reverently as if she were the college of surgeons personified, and showed their gratitude in all kinds of pretty childlike ways, singing her favorite Arab song as they ran beside her donkey, searching for sculptured fragments whenever there were ruins to be visited, and constantly bringing her little gifts of pebbles and wild flowers. Above Siut the picturesqueness of the river is confined for the most part to the eastern bank, we have almost always a near range of mountains on the Arabian side, and a more distant chain on the Libyan horizon. Gebel Sheikh Arenyes succeeds to Gebel Abu Feda, and is followed in close succession by the cliffs of Gao, of Gebel Sheikh El Haridi, 
of Gebel Aseret and Gebel Tuch, all alike rigid in strongly marked beds of level limestone strata, flat-topped and even, like lines of giant ramparts, and more or less pierced with orifices which we know to be tombs, but which look like loopholes from a distance. Flying before the wind, with both sails set, we see the rapid panorama unfold itself day after day, mile after mile, hour after hour. Villages, palm groves, rock-cut sepulchres flit past and are left behind. Today we enter the region of the dome-palm. Tomorrow we pass the map-drawn limit of the crocodile. The cliffs advance, recede, open away into desolate-looking valleys, and show faint traces of paths leading to excavated tombs on distant heights. The headland that looked shadowy in the distance a couple of hours ago is reached and passed. The cargo-boat on which we have been gaining all the morning is outstripped and dwindling in the rear. Now we pass a bold bluff sheltering a sheikh's tomb and a solitary dome-palm. Now an ancient quarry from which the stone has been cut out in smooth masses, leaving great halls and corridors and stages in the mountainside. At Gao, the scene of an insurrection headed by a crazy dervish some ten years ago, we see, in place of a large and populous village, only a tract of fertile corn-ground, a few ruined huts, and a group of decapitated palms. We are now skirting Gebel Sheikh el-Haridi, here bordered by a rich margin of cultivated flat, yonder leaving space for scarce a strip of roadway between the precipice and the river. Then comes Reina, a large village of square mud towers, lofty and battlemented, with string courses of pots for the pigeons, and later on, Gerga, once the capital town of Middle Egypt, where we put in for half an hour to post and inquire for letters. Here the Nile is fast eating away the bank and carrying the town by storm. A ruined mosque with pointed arches, roofless cloisters, and a leaning column that must surely have come to the ground by this time, stands just above the landing-place. A hundred years ago it lay a quarter of a mile from the river. Ten years ago it was yet perfect. After a few more inundations it will be swept away. Till that time comes, however, it helps make Gerga one of the most picturesque towns in Egypt. At Farshut we see the sugar-works in active operation. Smoke pouring from the tall chimneys, steam issuing from the traps in the basement, cargo-boats unlading fresh sugar-cane against the bank, heavily burdened Arabs transporting it to the factory, bullock-trucks laden with cane-leafing for firing. A little higher up, at Sahil Bajura, on the opposite side of the river, we find the bank strewn for a full quarter of a mile with sugar-cane en masse. Hundreds of camels are either arriving laden with it, or going back for more, dozens of cargo-boats are drawn up to receive it, swarms of brown fellaheen are stacking it on board for unshipment again at Farshut. The camels snort and growl, the men shout, the overseers, in blue-fringed robes and white turbans, stalk to and fro and keep the work going. The mountains here recede so far as to be almost out of sight, and a plain rich in sugar-cane and date-palms widens out between them and the river. And now the banks are lovely with an unwanted wealth of verdure. The young corn clothes the plain like a carpet, while the yellow-tasseled mimosa, the feathery tamarisk, the dome and the date-palm, and the spreading sycamore fig, border the towing-path like garden trees beside a garden walk. 
Farther on still, when all this greenery is left behind, and the banks have again become flat and bare, we see to our exceeding surprise what seems to be a very large grizzled ape, perched on the top of a dust-heap on the western bank. The creature is evidently quite tame, and sits on his haunches, in just that chilly, melancholy posture that the chimpanzee is wont to assume in his cage at the zoological gardens. Some six or eight Arabs, one of whom has dismounted from his camel for the purpose, are standing round and staring at him, much as the British public stands round and stares at the specimen in Regent's Park. Meanwhile a strange excitement breaks out among our crew. They crowd to the side, they shout, they gesticulate, the captain salams, the steersman waves his hand, all eyes are turned towards the shore. "'Do you see Sheikh Salim?' cries Ptolemy breathlessly, rushing up from below. "'There he is! Look at him! That is Sheikh Salim!' And so we find out that it is not a monkey but a man, and not only a man but a saint. Holiest of the holy, dirtiest of the dirty, white-pated, white-bearded, withered, bent, and knotted up, is the renowned Sheikh Salim, he who, naked and unwashed, has sat on that same spot every day through summer heat and winter cold for the last fifty years, never providing himself with food or water, never even lifting his hand to his mouth, depending on charity not only for his food but for his feeding. He is not nice to look at, even by this dim light and at this distance, but the sailors think him quite beautiful, and call aloud to him for his blessing as we go by. "'It is not by our own will that we sail past, O father,' they cry. "'Fain would we kiss thy hand, but the wind blows, and the Merkib boat, goes, and we have no power to stay.' But Sheikh Salim neither lifts his hand nor shows any sign of hearing, and in a few minutes the mound on which he sits is left behind in the gloaming." At Howe, where the new town is partly built on the mounds of the old, Diospolis Parva, we next morning saw the natives transporting small boatloads of ancient brick rubbish to the opposite side of the river, for the purpose of manuring those fields from which the early dura crop had just been gathered in. Thus, curiously enough, the mud left by some inundation of two or three thousand years ago comes at last to the use from which it was then diverted, and is found to be more fertilizing than the new deposit. At Kezer el Said, a little farther on, we came to one of the well-known bad bits, a place where the bed of the river is full of sunken rocks, and sailing is impossible. Here the men were half the day punting the Dahabiyah over the dangerous part, while we grubbed among the mounds of what was once the ancient city of Chinobasian. These remains, which cover a large, superficial area and consist entirely of crude brick foundations, are very interesting and in good preservation. We traced the ground plans of several houses, followed the passages by which they were separated, and observed many small arches which seemed built on too small a scale for doors or windows, but for which it was difficult to account in any other way. Brambles and weeds were growing in these deserted enclosures, while rubbish heaps, excavated pits, and piles of broken pottery divided the ruins and made the work of exploration difficult. We looked in vain for the dilapidated quay and sculptured blocks mentioned in Wilkinson's general view of Egypt, but if the foundation stones of the sugar factory close against the mooring place could speak, they would no doubt explain the mystery. 
we saw nothing indeed to show that chenobasian had contained any stone structures whatever save the broken shaft of one small granite column the village of kaiser s said consists of a cluster of mud huts and a sugar factory but the factory was idle that day and the village seemed half deserted the view here is particularly fine about a couple of miles to the southward the mountains in magnificent procession came down again at right angles to the river and thence reach away in long ranges of precipitous headlands the plain terminating abruptly against the foot of this gigantic barrier opens back eastward to the remotest horizon an undulating sea of glistening sand bordered by a chaotic middle distance of mounded ruins nearest of all a narrow foreground of cultivated soil green with young crops and watered by frequent shadoofs extends along the river-side to the foot of the mountain a sheikh's tomb shaded by a single dome palm is conspicuous on the bank while far away planted amid the solitary weeds we see a large coptic convent with many cupolas a cemetery full of christian graves and a little oasis of date palms indicating the presence of a spring the chief interest of this scene however centers in the ruins and these looked upon from a little distance blackened desolate half buried obscured every now and then when the wind swept over them by swirling clouds of dust reminded us of the villages we had seen not two years before half overwhelmed and yet smoking in the midst of a lava torrent below vesuvius we had now the full moon again making night more beautiful than day sitting on deck for hours after the sun had gone down when the boat glided gently on with half-filled sail and the force of the wind was spent we used to wonder if in all the world there was another climate in which the effect of moonlight was so magical to say that every object far or near was visible as distinctly as by day yet more tenderly is to say nothing it was not only form that was defined it was not only light and shadow that were vivid it was color that was present color neither deadened nor changed but softened glowing spiritualized the amber sheen of the sand island in the middle of the river the sober green of the palm grove the little lady's turquoise-colored hood were clear to the sight and relatively true in tone the oranges showed through the bars of the crate like nuggets of pure gold l's crimson shawl glowed with a warmer dye than it ever wore by day the mountains were flushed as if in the light of sunset. Of all the natural phenomena that we beheld in the course of the journey, I remember none that surprised us more than this. We could scarcely believe at first that it was not some effect of afterglow or some miraculous aurora of the east. But the sun had nothing to do with that flush upon the mountains. The glow was in the stone, and the moonlight but revealed the local color. For some days before they came in sight we had been eagerly looking for the Theban hills, and now, after a night of rapid sailing, we woke one morning to find the sun rising on the wrong side of the boat, the favorable wind dead against us, and a picturesque chain of broken peaks upon our starboard brow. By these signs we knew that we must have come to the great bend in the river between Hau and Kenna, and that these new mountains, so much more varied in form than those of Middle Egypt, must be the mountains behind Dendera. They seemed to lie upon the eastern bank, but that was an illusion which the map disproved, and which lasted only till the great corner was fairly turned. 
To turn that corner, however, in the teeth of wind and current, was no easy task, and cost us two long days of hard tracking. End of section 19